if you're so worried about the other guy winning, have you thought maybe the president is too powerful? Like, yeah. if it's life or death, whether your guy wins, recognize that your guy isn't always going to win, whether or not he does this time. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Bigger Hearts, Deeper Minds. I'm your host, Brad Johnson, and today I have my good friend Rian here to talk uh, politics, culture, uh, hopefully some libertarianism in there as well, and yeah, really just kind of get to know him and, and dive into it. So um, yeah, Rian, if you want to just kind of introduce yourself and let people know who you are, a little bit about what you do, and uh, we can start there. Yeah, uh, my name is Rian Travinsky. We just connected over our shared uh kind of approach to politics and society um we both kind of have a more like uh let's say balanced view wanting to go in with um looking for the the right answer that is um you know both uh intellectually based but doesn't uh forget the humanity of the people involved and everything and i when he asked me to do this podcast, I saw the the name, the bigger hearts, deeper minds. And I was like, oh, that's, that's, the, that's the kind of stuff I like. Yeah. Nice. Glad to hear it. Um, yeah. I mean, that's, that's cool to hear that even your first impression of it was just, you know, kind of right on with what I hoped people would glean from that. So that's really cool. Um, awesome. So first question I have for you is um, you describe yourself as a self-taught engineering technician. Can you share a little bit more about that and what inspired you to work in that field? Yeah, I originally moved out of state after college, um, ran out of money, and uh, some people were like, oh, you can just work in a uh, factory with no experience and they'll pay you plenty of money. And I was like, oh, that sounds like a sweet gig. Yeah. So I ended up doing that and they, um, I got lucky because I ended up working at this place where they recognized my like technical intelligence with like the little machines they had or whatever and put me in a informal uh engineering tech position and i managed to leverage that in the future to get into more formal engineering positions um as far as i could without a degree mm -hmm. um, and that uh put me in contact with a lot of different strata of society it was uh, i really uh wasn't uh i don't don't i don't think too fondly of my time in like the rural midwest mm. that i was out there far away from any civilization but i yeah. am thankful that it gave me a lot of um experience with people of all kinds you know you you work in some factories and you'd have people like um that were just the range from like the making the least amount of money to making well over 200,000 mm. and you, you talk to them both in the course of your work day. They're people that would just have more, uh, have a longer rap sheet than they did college credit list. Or anything. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just, just, uh, really expanded the experience I had. I actually, when I first moved to Indiana, that was my first instance of ever seeing someone unironically, not that that's ever, uh, in ever in good taste, but people do do it jokingly, <laughs> but like someone, uh, sick hired, uh, Hitler in front of a black dude, unironically. Oh, wow. It, was, it blew my mind. I was like, I didn't know. I thought, I thought like America was past this. 
The right. town I moved to was actually um, the site of the national Ku Klux Klan gathering like 15 years before I moved there or something. So Wow. No yeah, kidding. Like, yeah. <laughs> a lot of, uh, a lot of, um, it really, the experience uh, um, really, I forget what the exact quotation is, but something about um, sort of uh, social biases being cured by reading and travel. And while well, I don't mm -hmm. think that's like a, a cure all, I definitely think that um, just familiarizing oneself with get the ways different people live and avoiding a super insular sort of, I've never traveled outside of my own city, uh, uh, ventured outside of my own belief system or anything can really give you, um, open your eyes to what, what other people that aren't like you go through. Yeah, that's really well said. And speaking of that, that's, that's quite the story right there. So yeah, experiencing that like firsthand, do you feel like people, like when, when that happened, do you feel like it was coming from a genuine place of like hate or just kind of like ignorance or a mix of both or like, cause I, I would agree when you say like, I, I would think America's past that. It's something that you would think is so people are so culturally aware of that they're just, it's not going to happen. Then when it does, you're kind of just shell shocked from every angle. Yeah. There are some circles online, especially like really progressive, really like, um, hyper leftist circles that I've been in where mm. um, they are at least some, some of them are um, surprisingly self-aware in that they recognize that they're being online all the time almost sort of privileges them to a sort of um, being on the cutting edge of awareness and of political development I mean, even even if you're a hyper conservative, you can't be online every day and mm. not be aware of what the the leading edge of sort of political thought and editorials are or whatever. Um, whereas if you are just going to work and going to the grocery store every day and you're not really existing online, you know, I have I, I even just last year I had had a um, very leftist, very progressive um, partner that I'd met is sort of just as a like as a didn't really know them super well when I started dating mm -hmm. them, mm -hmm. but they, they were very much like the sort of like portrait of an SJW. And I, I mentioned SJWs to them once and they were like, what's an SJW. And I was just like, yeah, cause they're, they're too busy, like living their life, do it like just in their circles, which is, incidentally is pretty insular. Um, but yeah. they just have the, the sort of like thing that some people who, are engaged in a lot of the discourse and stuff would kind of think are just sort of like, well, everyone knows this or that. Um, right. But seeing people talk about the, the point wasn't derogatory. It was just like passively derogatory when you have someone says like, yeah, the, they, the, the gas station changed since the ragheads bought it. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, what? <laughs> right. And they're just, just like, I'm just like, I'm, uh, I just didn't, I literally just didn't, it was like, speechless i'm just like i am now i'm like right right like a subconscious presupposition in their mind that they're not like me they're different i'm with me and mine you know yeah which you know you can hear in country songs kind of like talked about idyllically me and my boys and we got this community and whatever but when you're not a part of that and you're coming in and you're immigrating or you are you know one of the only black dudes in a white area or whatever then you are going to be excluded from that and i think that's just the sort of product the, the people i saw sig highlighting the black dude were just kids 
Mm-hmm. And if I, I know, or like, and even even if they weren't kids, they were like, you know, pretty pretty young, ignorant people, or mm-hmm. they weren't like, they weren't like uh, skinheads or anything. But I was, it's right. just, it's like it's like they were they were they weren't viewing it as real. Mm-hmm. I think that makes sense. That's a that's a really good overview of it, and I think you make a great point too. When it's like you know. Because you're right, it completely depends on what someone's average lifestyle looks like. You might not have time to like sit on the internet like for, you know, a couple hours at the end of each day and be like, oh, what are people talking about in regards to politics today? And I was listening, I I pretty much listen to the Tim Pool uh, podcast like every day, and they were talking about that too, how it's like parents especially are some of the busiest people on the planet like they don't have time to sit around and just like learn about politics and discuss it because they have more important things to do like raising their kids and going to jobs and so it's 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 a very interesting point how yeah it can work in like both directions where it can be like someone's either insulated from things that might you know benefit them as far as like being open-minded or they're potentially just like no fault of their own they're just it's they're just too busy for it and i completely respect that i think politics (laughs) for the the people who are interested in it it can be uh, a stressful thing i i have to kind of mitigate it with myself i i can't just as much as i love learning about it it's not something that you can spend like eight hours of the day just consuming and and not go crazy as a result of it so yeah the more time you spend online too unless you go out of your way to seek out alternative views, any successful social media platform is algorithmically driven to further segregate you because you're going to enjoy more content that affirms what you think. And so it's kind of like that passive balkanization or or polarization of people. Yeah. So, I mean, if you're not, you don't, um, unless you just open an incognito window every day and you're like (laughs) paranoid, or whatever but they're they're building an idea of who you are and what's going to make you click on the ads or whatever yeah that's very true um yeah man that's that's a that's a really good point i don't think people my, myself included i don't i don't think the i mean the social media algorithm stuff does get quite a bit of attention but i don't think i think people are more prone to applying it to like other people like it would be like someone who's on the left saying like oh well those conservatives are just in their echo chamber but conservatives could be saying the same thing and it could be equally true on the other side so it's uh definitely a, a sign of the times that we have to contend with technology itself to you know remain honest um and just open-minded so i don't know if you um if you adopt a, a sort of explicitly libertarian paradigm that you approach to this but it's been a while since i've identified as like a capital l libertarian mm-hmm. and part of that is well, there are a couple of reasons for it, but one of the, one of the, I do have become more hesitant to be Mises capitalist, like mm. you know, just I, I I don't have a better answer at the moment, and so I'm just kind of like going with the bet, like it's the worst system except for all the others kind of right, approach right. to capitalism. <laughs> but the the people who own the social media algorithms are happy to tell you that the other guy sucks to both people, right? <laughs> talking out of their mouth as long as they both get you on their site. So it's very, um, I spend a lot of time in like meme groups on Facebook sometimes. Yeah. It just instrumentally. And um, people generally have this view that Facebook is biased against their position. Mm-hmm. When when Facebook is like 
from what I can tell being in a range of groups that they're basically just like, if you mention a color and if it could potentially be detected by an algorithm as talking about a person, the comment will get like punished or whatever. And it's like, yep. Facebook is just adopting a, none of it in any way, any cow. And everyone is just like, well, they're silencing us, not the other guy. But It's so true, man. I love that you mentioned that as well. Cause like, yeah, it's, uh, I, I feel like it's, it's that combined with just like, naturally people's preferred media coverage like it they're you're you're gonna hear more of what you want to hear and you're gonna not necessarily be exposed to conflicting viewpoints unless like you actually seek them out and yeah it's it's true it, it just creates this it's almost like once once a platform has enough data enough information to kind of build an idea of like what you like and what you don't like it's just gonna yeah keep feeding you more of the same and it's it's hard for people to realize that it yeah, it can go in any direction you want. So if, if anything, it's it's the user to blame uh, just as much, if not more so, than some of the algorithms in uh, in at least one perspective. But yeah, I think um, part of the problem in this dynamic is that these are, in in some sense, the the natural result of collectively all of our self-interested behavior. Like this is all of our like rational yeah. self-interest dynamically generates this situation where this is what the people want and so why shouldn't we like why shouldn't we expect companies to spring up trying to give us what we want and i don't know that it's entirely fruitful to try to chase after some utopia where people don't want this because i think it's human nature and people are going to want this and that's that's one of the strongest critiques i've heard of um sort of like capitalistic approaches is that if you just have a total free reign system, this is a sort of um, like it just that all roads lead to this kind of endpoint, and I don't, I don't know, I don't know what to say to that. I don't know what the, I don't know what the 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 cutoff point is, or how to erase the incentives that people have to feed our base instincts, because it's always lowest common denominator, like race to the bottom, right. Yeah, no, I agree. That's actually a perfect transition into one of the next questions I had for you. Is you mentioned just a little bit ago, you said it's been a while since you've identified as like a capital L libertarian. And, and I was like, yes, I can't wait to talk about this because this was one of the main things I wanted to discuss. But um, yeah, and you talked about how you've you've leaned away from the capitalist side and, and you're kind of working through some of your own thoughts on that. But um, can you expound on maybe what were some of the things that uh, caused you to think differently about like that side of libertarianism or even just like capitalism and the socioeconomic system at large, if, if that makes sense. <laughs> sure. Um, a lot of my political thought developed in accordance with like I, discovering libertarianism as a, as a teenager, which is pretty cliche, but like, <laughs> yeah, thankfully I never got, um, I never was enabled to be maximum cringe by like finding Ayn Rand and oh. being like, I'm a Randian. <laughs> like that was never, that was never my vibe, but gotcha. I found yeah. some like um, geared for high school or libertarian books that were kind of like common sense approaches to both the, like a political compass divide sort of way of um, why, why it's better to be permissive in the economic axis and why it's better to be mm -hmm. permissive in the social axis. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the, is it kind of sort of engaging 
and getting down to the sort of like axiomatic level of what is what does it mean to or like what are the ultimate things at which we're driving like what is the greatest good or whatever and for sort of a secular approach to libertarianism there doesn't seem to be any non-arbitrary stopping point before you get to anarchism mm. and that and i uh, t- sort of take an a priori approach to anarchism or a although i could just as easily take one that's more pragmatic and just say anarchism just plain doesn't work mm-hmm. though i'm sure lots of people would disagree but the because i think that i i don't i know my destination isn't going to be anarchism and i don't see any way that the the sort of um base ideas that lead to capital L libertarianism should stop. I'm like, well, I have to choose some other base thing. So now I just kind of describe myself as a, a, a minarchist or, mm. um, you know, someone who's just aiming for uh, as less, as little government as possible, minimal archy. Um, yeah. And um, talking as far as what kind of started to jade me, uh, over hypercapitalism is the degree to which corporations will tend to take advantage of government and they would just find their way in bed together and it's very i don't see an easy way to remedy mm. that sort of predilection i had one friend remark to me in college he was like well societies historically only ever get less free accepting the point of revolution <laughs> Yeah, and I was like, "That's a really depressing thought." That like, you can you can try to basically sl- set up a, a slow decline as slow as you want to as the founders, and then but it, it's it's only ever going to decline, which is until people get fed up with it, and some generation says we're breaking down the system as a whole. Um, right. But the the idea that you know what people might say, well, that's not real capitalism. That's corporatism i'll be like yes but how can you successfully instantiate how can you successfully make a system that is pure capitalist that won't corrode over time and and devolve into corporatism like you even have Mm -hmm. hundreds i forget what company it was but they had the national guard come out to put down a worker strike which is key the the ability of the workers to strike is uh an intrinsic part of the of the even playing field that capitalism seeks to impose and saying that all our work like if you don't like the working conditions you're under then leave mm-hmm. if, if the if the company is gonna get the government to come in with guns until you know you can't leave well then you're you're not really you're you're misplaced if you're trying to defend the company in that situation is it's no longer you you're, you're it's the power imbalance that you're bringing in and now it's far more nefarious. They're not companies, you know, companies aren't calling the government in with guns. They're just regulating the little guys out of business. Right. I couldn't agree more. I, I feel like that was an amazing just description of, of this, the seemingly inevitable downfall that, that some of these kind of cultural forces and yeah, just governmental forces have. Um, and just, yeah, like you said, the, the critical weak spots in the capitalist system, I'm I'm glad you touched on minarchism too, because I I think something that I've seen in increasing numbers in both capital L and just regular I guess lowercase L libertarian circles is 
a lot of the libertarians that I both respect and um, just try to learn from is they they have shifted, like you mentioned, into a more minarchist view. And I think the reason that we don't hear more about that often is I think libertarianism is still seen as, for lack of a better term, like the gateway drug into like minarchism and just anarchy and just, yeah, a lot of other kind of freedom-minded ideologies uh, in general. And, and it's it's interesting because it's like minarchism and libertarianism are not the same, but I, I think people just, yeah, just kind of use it somewhat in a lazy way to be like, we, we still want people to talk about like liberty, but we're not going to kind of put minarchism out there in the front. And to me, that makes sense from one angle because it's like I, most people, I think, have a skewed perception of what, you know, anarchy is in general. You, you hear most people hear the word anarchy and they just think like, massive lawlessness and just like depravity of the worst kind and it's like that's not that's not what it is and that's not what people intend for it to be um so i think libertarianism is kind of just this this softer more palatable way of describing similar principles in a way that people seem to gravitate towards more often but yeah i think um um some of the issues that come with like anarchy is like the the way people the the criticisms people have or level at libertarians and the sort of like, um, you know, anarcho-capitalists mm -hmm. seen with their are, are are generally like they're they're just like joking and dunking on anarcho-capitalists, right? But the, the the criticism seems to hold merit to me. It just doesn't seem like I, I don't really see too many. Um, and granted, I guess I haven't purposefully sought them out. But like when people talk about like, well, should you just be able to own up own your you know your private nuclear warhead? And I'm like, well, yeah. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is to that because libertarianism kind of forces you into a corner where you kind of have to give it a hard yes. Right. Um, I'm not sure that that's the that's the wisest thing there. In yeah. A lot of different senses though. Right. No, I I agree. It's there's the the longer I've been, and I don't even know to be honest if I would consider myself like a, a uppercase or lowercase L libertarian, but I feel like the longer I've been in kind of liberty circles and ascribed to these mindsets, the more I realized like, wow, there's a lot of little niches of society and just like cultural questions where I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't have the clean answer to that, that I thought I did. But um, yeah, I think it's some of the stuff you were talking about too, made me think about how another friend brought up the point, like sometimes it seems like we're too quick to ascribe labels almost as like if, oh, if like, you know, if Rian and Brad are like libertarians or, or whatever we are, then that must mean that they think this and you can't be a libertarian unless you think that or whatever, or you must be a conservative because you think that. And it's like, I think if we were willing to let go of the labels a little bit to, to see like where people have common ground, I feel like that would be so beneficial. But I, I feel like it, People don't necessarily want that because it, it makes it easier to think something of someone if you have that label on them. And I, and I think that's something that we're all guilty of to, to some degree. But it's a, it's a messy issue. It's a complex thing because it's like, how do you how do you talk with people about conflicting views without needlessly like ascribing certain labels to those views? You know, sure. But, yeah, there's. Um... I mean that's that's um, what I was gonna say earlier. Actually, I, when I on my Facebook profile, I actually have myself as a bleeding heart monarchist. Oh yeah, <laughs> sort I think of it's... like because a lot of the um, 
the more um, into the sort of social aspect of politics I've gotten, the more SJWE I have gotten. I just tend to take more of a you know private sector solution. Mm. Sort of like I, I don't know that the government's um, fixing this for us is the solution mm-hmm. so much as it is like because I'm I'm at more my advocacy in that area tends to be more of one of awareness mm. instead yeah. of like these are there are imbalances um, you know in in what have you and I think that we should work as a society together like this is the whole point is that we should be taking collective responsibility and that's the only real antidote to the sort of slow slide into tyranny that everyone views as the you know great evil we're supposed to be avoiding which i think is kind of you know inevitable to a certain degree but right and part of the reason for that is that monarchism is an, a sort of unsexy term to use is because it is it kind of counters until it until it, at least until it rises up into a sort of cliche right. it kind of counters the ability of people to say well you know there's libertarian.com that tells me what you believe if you call yourself a capital l libertarian and minarchism is is fuzzy. It's complex. It's nuanced, and people don't want nuance. People people want: Are you Democrat or Republican? Right. I mean, already saying I'm libertarian is frustrating to to many people who would seek to. Well, no, which one are you? Like, let's see. There's a uh, quotation from one of my favorite books called "I and Thou," mm. where this guy makes a commentary on the sort of uh, nature of men's relation, and he says uh, in the introduction from Walter Kaufman, he says, the good way must be clearly good, but not wholly clear. If it is quite clear, it is too easy to reject. What is wanted is an oversimplification, a reduction of a multitude of possibilities to only two. But if the recommended path were utterly devoid of mystery, it would cease to fascinate men. Since it clearly should be chosen, nothing would remain but to proceed on it. There would be nothing left to discuss and interpret, to lecture and write about, to admire and merely think about. The world exacts a price for calling teachers wise. It keeps discussing the paths they recommend, but few men follow them. The wise men give un- endless opportunities to discuss what is good. And another party says something about how, or he says, not all, simplici- not all simplicity is wise, but a wealth of possibilities breeds dread. Hence, those who speak of many possibilities speak to the few and are of help to even fewer. The wise offer only two ways of which one is good and thus help many and it's that sort of thing like when you say Mm -hmm. like well there's there's this political compass and Mm -hmm. democrats and republicans are both on the top right to like in in the grand scheme of things right and (laughs) people want to restrict it to just that little bubble where like well there's there's all these sorts of fringe ideologies where you can live like just the other day i was talking about the 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 real virtue that could be brought about by a thing called a, a lotocracy where you kind of like pick who's president this week from everyone in America and mm. just sort of randomly pick the president that way, which I think has, has real merit to discuss though only more as a thought of experiment. Cause you aren't going to convince 300 million people in 2020 yeah. to do that. But th- these sorts of things require a, a, a real empathy and cognitive willingness both ability and willingness, because they're very different, to recognize things and reality, like reality itself, as imperfect and fuzzy, and to hold definitions loosely. But when 
like you said, monarchism isn't popular. I mean, the the whole reason we have a two-party system, aside from first past the post, is that there's kind of a just a, a, a willful reduction people wa- want to sink into comfortably into right. us versus them. Yeah. Oh man, you touched on so much good stuff there. I wish <laughs> I want to like break down all of it, but. No, that was that was super well said. That that quote, by the way, was phenomenal. It's it's so true. It's it's that was certainly a quote from an intellectual to be appreciated by anyone who's willing to step into that realm and and to grapple with the things that that writer is talking about. Um, But yeah, that is uh, wow. You touched on so much good stuff. I. I totally agree that uh, it, it's yeah, it's it's comfortability, it's it's convenience, it's ease, it's it's I want to outsource like all of the political and like economic decision making to someone else, and I want someone to fight for the issues that I think are important and squash the people who oppose like my issues. So it's yeah, it's it's the human heart. I, f- I feel like politics really speaks to just the nature of the human heart and and how how much all of us are prone to, um, I guess, various forms of just self-destruction and, and kind of just like an us versus them mentality if, if that's not checked. And yeah, it, it really is true when, when you're talking about like, if we have all these choices, it 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 creates this complexity and, and this sort of like, yeah, I forget what exactly what the quote said, but just kind of this, there's, there's, there's just all this out there and you have to like work your way through it. You were talking too about how like even saying libertarianism, it, it creates this like this fuzziness and haziness of like, well, you've got to be a, at the end of the day, you've still got to be a conservative or a liberal liberal. Right. And it's like, no, you, you don't have to be, but it, yeah, it's, it speaks to how people have this kind of this false dichotomy or this, just this false view that, that life is kind of everything boils down to a binary when, in reality, there's there's very few things that boil down to a binary, if if anything at all. Um, certainly in the political sphere, there's very few things that truly boil down to a binary. But yeah, super well said. Just the uh, invention of the political compass and its popularization yeah. is, I think, the perfect step to bring people from a sort of unidimensional, how left or right are you? into right. just one, one, literally one dimension more complex, you know, in a very yeah. um, accessible way to sort of, because now anyone um, growing up knows what a political compass is as like whether they're 14 and they don't actually understand what that means in practice or not. Right. They, they're, they're familiar with the idea of the, the orthogonality uh, or like the, the unrelatedness of being economically controlling and socially controlling. Right. And so they, there is this sort of like, okay, we can add one piece more nuance now, and let's right. and that can serve as a, a little bit of a bridge into thinking, maybe maybe there's more than just left versus right, um, and I think a lot of, it may well be the case that a, a lot of social progress, if you actually want to incite it, will come about by means of people who are able to find what that system is that can be brought to the masses that is only one dimension more complex than what people are familiar with mm-hmm. for because when you try to start talking about like um you know the the idea 
uh, the viability, the the political viability of say that lotocracy of uh, a, a lotto government or a lottery government, yeah. like they used to have in um, Athens and um, for certain positions in Rome, like that was a thing that people did so that you could never predict who was going to be the the most powerful person. So you can never mm. pre-plan a coup, right. so that you can never like take uh, bring enough power to yourself in quick enough time to cement yourself as the all-powerful dictator or whatever um the the moving just a little bit to touch on why that's a, a thing worth considering is the idea mm -hmm. that i mean just the example of well corporations would have to figure out and like the the, pol the politicians would have to they wouldn't know who to market to as opposed to making themselves palatable to the current president they'd have to market themselves to whoever might be president they'd have to make them right. they'd have to come up with policies and um a sort of posture towards all of us yeah which, like wait a second we don't want corporations having to make themselves available to all of us politicians making themselves amenable to everyone at once um but that's that's an example of the sort of thing that is while people who are probably downloading your podcasts are going to be able to grapple with whether they agree or disagree with that viability, they're going to be able to say, I see what you're saying and I agree. I see what you're saying. I disagree. Right. For the, the vast majority of people, that's going to be, that's just going to be dismissed out of hand. That is too many dimensions, too, too, too many like paradigms shifted. I agree. That's super well said. And, and it creates, it, it creates an environment where people can't, uh, like unleash their passions and hatreds for various things. Cause it's like, yeah, if, if it's just going to be a random, if it's going to be someone in South Dakota one week and the next week, it's going to be someone in New York and then it's going to be Florida and then Tennessee, you can't, it, it, you reach a point of diminishing returns where you end up putting in more effort than is worth it to be angry at or happy about something that will literally change within a matter of days. So yeah, it's, it's a, uh, it's a really good point. It's, it's so interesting too that it's it's like with going back to the political compass for a minute um i i took it too and i i ended ended up somewhere in the bottom right which is basically for people unfamiliar is the economically permissible and socially permissible quadrant you know i saw a bunch of other friends who were taking it and you know posting the results and it, it's interesting too to see how i i feel like i mean i could be wrong but i feel like what i sensed with just looking at like people's comments on my own or like other friends and stuff like that. I feel like it was kind of a situation where if people saw like, Oh, like so-and-so got similar results. Like th I knew I was right. Or, you know, like I got the right answer cause they got the right answer too, or whatever, you know? And then you, you see someone else who gets something different and it, if you're, if it doesn't create that moment of pause in someone to like, think about, Oh, like I actually respect this person or I, I, I know that like I enjoy hearing from, this person's views, but they think so differently from me. Like, how can that be? I just find that so interesting that it, it's still, like you said, e even though things might just be like one dimension different or people can, you know, get any result, but they're still kind of looking at it through this binary view of like, this person is right and this person is wrong. So yeah, it's really interesting stuff. <laughs> well, first I'll say that um, someone I think is, doing that sort of one dimension different and i touched on this earlier with the reason why we have two parties is that first past the post as a voting system which was the current um u.s federal election 
uh, vote counting system mm -hmm. in first past the post, you have whoever has a, and I'm probably going to be using the wrong terms here aside from Googling them to be sure, but like mm -hmm. whoever has like a raw plurality, whoever has enough votes to win without any doubt between two is going to, is going to, whoever gets the most votes period wins the election. Mm -hmm. And in game theory, you're, you're better, you're better off just putting all, all people who roughly think like you to try to form 51% block voting block and win that way. Right. And it's, it, it disincentivizes your choosing third parties, um, for spoiler effects on voting and all sorts of different sort of like, you know, game theory ways. Um, one of the, one of the biggest things we can do is to change first past the post as a voting system. Mm. And in that way, increase our ability to vote for who we really agree with without worrying about gaming the system. Right. Well, I want to vote for Gary Johnson as a libertarian. I want to vote for the green party because I really care about the environment, but I guess I'll vote for the Democrats because I know the Green Party isn't going to win. Right. If you can come up with a voting system to eliminate that concern, you can have people voting their conscience wholesale mm -hmm. and not feeling like they're doing a disservice to the actual country or anything like that. It, it really struggles my, or really like um, challenges my sense, like in my deepest part of my being, that there's always a perfect solution. But mm. mathematically, it's actually impossible to have a perfect voting system. Mm. I don't fully understand the math involved in this, but it, there's like certain dimensions to voting as far as fairness, um, the ability to game it and stuff. And there's no voting system mathematically possible to solve them all. Mm. This hurts in my heart. But one of the yeah. better one, <laughs> a better one than first past the post is just uh, ranked choice voting. One yeah. of those, those ones. And uh, there's a page in Illinois where I think we both live um, for to try to advocate on the state level. Uh, the institution of ranked choice voting on any local or state level elections. Um, and in doing that way, in sort of like the, the local government way, you can kind of demonstrate the power and then kind of get try to seek after a groundswell in that way mm. by challenging people like, oh, here's this voting system we have, because already you're attacking something to which people have no tie. They don't really care. Well, they may care, but they don't have any. They don't. They don't have any emotional investment in how their votes are counted. Right. The method used, and so like, oh, have you ever thought about how your votes are counted? Probably not. Yeah. Consider that this might be a better way. Demonstrate that people now can vote for can get more proportional representation. There, there's all all sorts of benefits in doing this, and then try to eventually dismantle the the iron grip Democrat versus Republican has in the United States. The the only thing that's going to happen is that there's going to be what looks like at this point a, a sort of like merging of Democrat and Republican into one. Mm -hmm. It's going to wither and die, and then we're going to have a hyper-progressive and then a hyper, hopefully not alt-right, and hopefully it's going to be more like libertarian, right? Right. But the, it's, it's only, they're only going to molt into two different parties that are left versus right, the, the new left versus the new right. I agree. Yeah, no, that's that's amazing. I'm so glad you mentioned rank rank choice voting. I, I felt like you were headed in that direction, and it's it's so true. It's one of those things where, I mean, I, I can't say that in my own discussions with just family and friends, I can't think of many people who are even familiar with what that is unless they've spent a considerable amount of time just researching 
political news and just just being involved in the political sphere and and that's that's no dis you know that's that's not to discredit anyone it's it's no this is very niche and it benefits in that in that now people don't have any emotional attachment to argue through they're just like oh yeah, yeah sure, why not totally and it you know rank choice creates this it, it creates an opportunity where people number one people don't feel like they're quote unquote pigeonholed into you know the the two choices like you said um it it you, you touched too on how it would it would lessen that that iron grip, just kind of this this death grip of like just the two party system. It forces them to actually compete. It it speaking of capitalism, ranked choice is basically it's a capitalistic tool upon the political apparatus. So for sure, yeah, that's awesome. The uh, the sort of mechanism that I think that the the of of popularizing this to actually because i believe don't quote me on this but i think it may require (laughs) at least an act of congress if not a constitutional amendment to change how first past the voting first past the post voting works Mm, mm -hmm. Um, but it'll take a lot of popular support which i do believe the potential is there for it but it really needs to kind of take hold at the at the local and state level Mm -hmm. um Ultimately, though, I, um, I end up caring less and less about the presidential election. I mean, really, I think that right. ideally we live in a country where, you know, your life doesn't change by the man that's elected, it, it, where you, the, the president, just every presidency gets more and more powerful. Like, I mean, there's a, there's a kind of a, a usual libertarian refrain of if you're so worried about the other guy winning, have you thought maybe the president is too powerful? Like, yeah. If it's life or death, whether your guy wins, recognize that your guy isn't always going to win, whether or not he does this time. Right. Like maybe, maybe realize like, cut, keep some of the power to yourself. Totally. The um, the 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 fact that I don't that I would prefer to not care about the the federal level politics as much is that I think that we have my voice matters just just numerically. It matters more in chicago as a resident than it does in the united states as a resident just obviously because there's 300 million people in 350 400 i don't know in u.s versus not even not you know just a few million in chicago Mm -hmm. and i've been in small towns where zoning questions come up and there are questions of should we build this or not and for various reasons i think yes it should be mm-hmm. i have the potential to be able to speak directly to the people who will be making those choices physically face to face i can go to the mayor's office you can make those differences in your local government and almost without caveat i would say if you want to make a difference in your country then make a difference in your town yeah and and if you want to change how policing is done stop worrying about how policing in Atlanta, Georgia is done when you live in Chicago. Right. How to change how Chicago policing is done. If you live in a suburb, stop worrying about Chicago police and start worrying about your suburb Naperville police or whatever it is. Um, Talking to individual police or just like talking to your police chief via email or the mayor, whatever it is. Yeah. It was just a few years ago where I was like, I don't think I'm ever going to run for office, but if I were, I would probably (laughs) run on, like reforming police. Mm. And then I was like, like that would ever work. And then <laughs> a few years later, this is like <laughs> oh, a huge yeah. national talk. Like, right. I'm like, 
I'm unbelievably grateful that it is. There is yeah. a large number of reasons why. It's one of my two passions for changing society is the uh, uh, like criminal punishment system, both policing and judiciary. Um, and the other is um, sort of uh, urban planning, which mm -hmm. is a, a real, a real um, un unknown but impactful thing um, yeah. that uh, before, before I talk too much about that, I guess if you had anything to say about what I said already, let you speak. All right. Sounds good. No, I, you touched on two amazing topics and yeah, we should definitely explore them a little bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. Talk about, talk about an issue that was not obscure, but relatively like either unpopular or just, just somewhat uncontested in the public. Or eye. just accepted. Like police suck. Right. Innocent people sometimes get arrested or beaten up like by the police. Oh, well, like it was, it's yeah. hard to ignore since Rodney King and it got filmed more and more, but people are just kind of like, well, that's the world. Right. And then it just, yeah, overnight just with, I mean, there, there's too many to mention, but obviously the big ones like George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, you know, uh, Ahmaud Arbery, just obviously we, we could, we could list names forever and, and all, you know, anyone who's ever been a victim of, of police brutality deserves to be, you know, known. Um, but yeah, no, I would love to explore that a little bit more. So yeah, what, if, if you were, I guess if, if you were kind of like building a campaign now and take, taking in everything that you just mentioned, where it's like, like number one, police reform, we need it. Number two, think local, not super national all the time. And then I guess number three, like speaking, speaking to people's passions, I guess, in an ethical way. I, I feel like I'm kind of inferring that from just some of our conversations so far. What, what would you how would you kind of build your campaign or, or what do you think that you would like tackle first if that were still like a current consideration of yours? What is most important to me or what do I think would play the best <laughs> for, from a, cause you say campaign, I think, well, now I've got to market myself. Right. Uh, that's a good question. I think, how would you speak to others? So yeah, how, how would you market yourself? I would be as, as me, I would be running locally. So I would, mm -hmm. I would be focused on that local thing. I would be talking about making a difference in the community in which I'd be running, I'd be, mm. I mean, the, the, the specific changes that I would want to see, I mean, there are, there are like a handful, there's a small number of bullet points that I, I didn't prepare or anything. So I don't know if I could recite them, but, but those are all, you're good. <laughs> those are all, um, very national level concerns, mm. like uh, specific immunities based on Supreme court precedent and stuff. I'm mm. not going to change that for Chicago. Chicago doesn't get to wriggle out of national Supreme court decisions. Right. Um, but I can still change the, uh, way that we police in, in our community, our, our hypothetical community. Mm -hmm. Um, there, I listened to a, um, excellent podcast recently. Or actually, I'll just say, use this opportunity to name drop a few. Like, This American Life has been instrumental in changing a lot of my um, political thinking. Mm -hmm. um, and it does it very passively. It's almost as mm -hmm. if you are traveling when you are listening to This American Life. Oh, cool. You, you kind of gain a sort of slice of life view, whether politically loaded or not, Yeah. from anywhere in the nation. Um, and it really does kind of give you an, an expansion of your perspective of what it's like to be 
uh, rich, what it's like to be poor, what it's like to be a car salesman, what it's like mm. to do this or that, and the sorts of concerns and experiences that you can expect to encounter in those sorts of things. Um, one of the episodes of a This American Life is an NPR show. One of the spin-offs mm. of um, their one of those NPR shows, I think it was, um, or actually may not have been NPR, may have been the show. Um, oh, what is that? There's a philosophy podcast. I'm actually going to see what this. <laughs> Sounds good. I'm curious. Um, I'm always looking for more podcasts myself, political or not. Well, the show itself was um, about oh, Hi-Fi Nation, H-I-P-H-I Nation, okay. a product of Slate podcasts. Okay. Um, they had one on policing, and part of the point they made was you don't get arrested for violating a crime and the reason for this is that everyone's breaking everyone's committing a crime all the time mm. you don't you don't get pulled over for speeding mm -hmm. you everyone has driven past a cop while speeding and not been pulled over right um there's plenty i could say about that i have an yeah. issue with speed limits from a philosophical standpoint yeah in that they just sort of prevent, provide the sort of blanket justification for pulling over whomever they want, given right. that now everyone's a criminal. But right. the issue is that we choose what crimes to enforce based on what we tell the police to do. When we put 10% of police in homicide and 30% in traffic enforcement, we're going to see a lot more traffic enforcement than we do homicide follow-up. Mm. And to a certain extent, we need more cops in traffic enforcement than homicide. There are more people driving and and almost killing people every day than there are people purposefully killing people every day. That's very true. But um, when you overload, when you have a disproportionate application of police resources, you end up with unjust outcomes. And they're looking at those and developing ref reforms to apply to those. You end up with a lot of good from a little bit of effort, just a little bit of investment of effort. Um, there's the principle, the 80-20 principle, where you mm. can get 80% of mastery in a skill from just 20% of the effort, mm -hmm. and then you need 80% of the effort to get that last 20% of mastery. Right. The same thing applies in changing policing. Say that you can get 80% of the reforms you want with 20% of the effort if you apply it efficiently. One of the ways yeah. that um, one of the stories they covered, I believe it was in High Nation, if not This American Life, was a woman who got a notoriously un like j a jail notorious for its unjust treatment of prisoners mm. essentially shut down for lack of business by yeah. looking at what the most arrests by volume were and they were for things that were they were for things that were popular to decriminalize mm. so like you know it wasn't as it wasn't as stupid as jaywalking or littering but it was something like that where you're like should people really be spending a week in, in jail for this kind of BS that's selectively enforced anyway? Right. Which, which again, goes back to giving rise to that sort of unjust enforcement. But when you are hamstringing the ability of the justice system to be unjust, you end up with, obviously, a more just justice system. Right. So if you can look at where you're throwing your police and say, we're going to stop throwing these bored police officers who are looking for something to do, a bad guy to catch, at places where there are no bad guys, 
so that they stop creating bad guys in the in those spheres right we'll free up we'll save money by having less shifts we'll save injustice by avoiding the outcome where you you know there's a excellent quote from the tv show the wire where one of the guys lays into his subordinates mm-hmm. and he's like talking about soldiers you're talking about this war on drugs you put people you call them soldiers you give them m16s and you say go fight a war right who's the war out the war is against the citizenry the the you adopt a soldier's mindset and in non-war time you're going to have all these civilian casualties because the civilians are the enemy so it's like the yeah. both the reorientation of how you apply police resources and the humanization the the de-escalation of the citizenry from enemy combatants to fellow humans i've heard stories from police who switch from night shift to day shift mm-hmm. and they're driving through these places where you and i since we're you know we're not packing when we're walking through the street right we wouldn't want to go there because we're at risk just because we're normies basically right we don't want to walk through these streets and the police know that the police view this as hostile territory right and they come through in the morning and they see all the moms and dads dads going to work moms have their kids out to play they're watering their lawns or whatever right and they're like it's literally night and day and that sort of um they 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 kind of sees that other side to the humanity of what had been to them like a war-torn area putting police on the ground yeah. bike cops foot patrols um the reason that wire quotation happened was he asked his sergeant the captain asked his sergeant um do you have any leads and he's like no the people don't want to talk to me and he's mm-hmm. like well why would they talk to you like they mm-hmm. you you gotta be forming this community relations and it's not just your pretty boy community relations officer going to Starbucks on Saturday morning with people right. going to the, 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 the war torn areas. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's communicating that you do care that some girl was just raped in the alley last week and nobody told the cops I got mugged. I didn't bother telling the cops because I knew they wouldn't give a fuck like, or excuse my language, but like, you're fine, man. <laughs> yeah. Like I, and then later in the day, actually I got harassed by cops. And then I wow. told him, like, dude, I was, I, I'm only in this situation right now because I got mugged, blah, blah, blah. It's like yeah. a whole story. But, like, the, the cops are like, why didn't you tell us? And I'm like, what are you going to do, dude? And he's just like, Ugh. I'm like, this is, this is the attitude in microcosm of what people have. When you, when you express that you do care about the muggings, you do care about the rapes, the thefts, whatever it is, people are going to be more willing to talk to you and, and feel like something's going to happen when uh, a real or a quote unquote real concern that the police are actually now asking people and wondering why they're getting stonewalled. Right. Um, that's something, another thing that I um, ended up talking to when I was in that small town, they had a bike cop and they, and I actually saw him riding around where all the people were just congregating and just like having fun and just, you know, joking around and being, ha- having a good attitude and yeah. less of a, I'm on guard. I'm going to patrol through Iraq kind of vibe. Right. Um, and I went and emailed my local police chief voicing my, as a, as a, as a community member, like, thank you for this. Yeah. Keep doing that. I see that you're, you're changing the practices. I see that this is happening. We like this. I'm, yeah. I'm a voice from your community telling you, we like this. We like people out here engaging with us, meeting us on a person to person level, not rolling around in a Humvee which is what the police cars are basically these days. Yeah. 
Super well said. Um, yeah, it's it's so true that when you're talking about um, the the environment to which someone's, I guess, perspective is trained cre- almost creates the, it, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where it's like, if you're training someone to only look for a certain thing, they're only going to find a certain thing. So we have to change what people are looking for and, and what people... Um, ultimately, you know, arms of the government as, as police, we have to train them differently to just, like you said, rehumanize things, like bring, bring the humanity back to not only the profession, but just, um, just the environment. Yeah. Just every, every dimension in which people are interacting with each other. And it's, it's only going to, the more that, um, a police member is, is being trained to view it a situation a particular way it's going to be i would think be more likely to encourage people to respond in a certain way and, and it's like yeah if, if we can just you said something like take the take away the fact that like citizens are being viewed as like enemy combatants like just you know see them as humans again see them as people who are just just like police are at the end of the day like people who have lives families they have they have a home to return to after their shift it's it, it definitely, um, it's, it's a, it's an issue that is in deep need of reform on a lot of different levels. So, yeah. Yeah. There's a, um, <clears throat> an excellent article from, uh, it's the title is confessions of a former bastard cop. <laughs> it's uh, a reference to the popular slogan, a cab or all mm. cops are bastards. Yeah. And, um, in it, he talks about, um, the issue with the the structural issues with policing he's talking about as a as a cadet Mm -hmm. him and every other cadet is bombarded with images of state troopers on highways just getting a gun in the face off of a routine traffic stop and it's just shoved down their throats they're going to kill you they're going to kill you the only people you can trust are your fellow cops Mm. and and that's just a one instance of a of a daily, hourly, you know, yearly campaign um, that is systemic. And so it, it's not it's not um, people will talk back like to the idea like all cops are bastards. Well, I know a cop and he's a nice guy. Right. Like okay, that's that nobody nobody denies that there are virtuous individuals working as police. Right. Well. No, generally that's not the. I know what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) But the uh, the idea is that as a product of generations of this sort of thing, that this is just now how it is, and that we need to change how cadets are treated if we want to change how grown police officers act. He says in the article, the reforms aren't working. Incrementalism isn't working. It's it is a. He says, as someone who went through the training, hiring, and socialization of a career in law enforcement, I want to give a firsthand account of why I believe police officers are the way they are, not to excuse their behavior, but to explain it and to indict the structures that perpetuate it. Mm. It's, um, it's, it is very much like if I were like going back to how I'd campaign it, I would change the academy. That's where Mm. police are made. So that's where you're going to change. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a really quite funny um, quotation that sort of, references the unrealism the like the irrealism mm. of, of people changing their mind yeah. by saying that um new what is that let's see he says uh planks principle the same plank that 
to whose name was given to the Planck length. Scientific autobiography okay. says, um, science progresses one funeral at a time. Old scientists don't change their minds. They just die off mm. in the same way that we, we shouldn't really expect police to change. We should expect them to retire. That's the, the, the abusive, coercive police structures aren't going to be reformed so much as we're going to just grow up better ones to supplant them. Um, and so right. changing, changing academies, changing how um, police captains are chosen, how police chiefs are chosen, that kind of thing is going to be huge. Totally agree. Um, Ron, uh, Captain Ron Johnson talks about that a lot too, in, in, or at least to some extent in uh, 13 Days in Ferguson. And um, there's another one, uh, Under Our Skin, uh, I can't remember the author's name right now. I, I feel bad, but um, yeah, those those two books alone really changed my view of of not just not just the police profession and and just some of the reforms that are so deeply needed, but it was really just like reading two black men's uh, perspectives on uh, just their lives, like not only just growing up in a completely different world than the world I grew up in, but just honest honestly just very honest in-depth um really memoirs in a sense of of everything that you're just talking about and so yeah it, it goes back to what you said earlier at the uh top of the episode like reading and travel can definitely change someone's mind and i think you even said too it's those aren't the only antidotes and i totally agree but but definitely like putting yourself in someone else's shoes whether literally or you know uh by distance just just through the power of a book but um, yeah, totally agree. It's, uh, reforms are, are definitely deeply needed and, and from the bottom up, I, I could be wrong on this, but I, I'm pretty sure I read that, uh, American policing requirements to officially step into the profession are drastically different from that of other countries where you, you don't need as much education. Yeah. You don't need as much, um, experience there. The, the bar is just a lot lower and, and I think it speaks to the fact that, um, you're always going to attract uh, a particular type of talent and people who are more committed to a type of profession if the requirements are more stringent and if they are just more focused on quality over quantity. And, and it's, I love what you said earlier too. It's like um, most people would agree that it's, most people don't think that like every last single police officer is like, you know, out there to like hunt people down or whatever. And I, I, I totally agree. It's, but it's, you know, it, it has, th this issue en masse has <laughs> risen up through the, the public sphere, and I'm, I'm very grateful for it because I've, I've seen a lot of people uh, start to think differently about it. And, and I guess to libertarians' credit or just people who are freedom-minded freedom in general, libertarians have been harping on this issue way, you know, way earlier than just last year. So, yeah. Yeah, the... Uh the sort of like I told you, <laughs> right. it, it is, uh, it is, um, you know, just egotistical good feeling, but also it's a, it's a good <laughs> feeling in that you, you're like, like it, it's, it's, it's deeply optimistic. It's very, it's very like idealistic in that, like, you know, there's hope there's, there's real right. hope for things to change. There's maybe society historically only ever becomes less free, but you know, maybe we can, have a little lapse in our slide into tyranny maybe we can right. you know, fight our way back out of this kind of like 
the sort of like Star Trek vibe of like humans are the only species that have grit and will and yeah <laughs> whatever <laughs> but um very well said yeah the uh the the i will say that um my what i was talking about how police on on foot um results in different sorts of interactions than police in cars mm-hmm. um provides a nice segue into what i had begun to speak about earlier about urban planning mm. in that uh, this may not be true for for everyone, but it really does feel to me like it's like a sort of to someone who's played a lot of video games yeah. and to someone who has had a lot of um, interactions with police. I was um, up until fairly recently had been um, homeless for a few years, mm-hmm. and so you end up with a lot of um, just uh, you know what are you doing here in a parking lot right. alone, like sitting, and then it yeah. turns into this big fight um but when when a cop drives by it does feel like the video game like of the enemy patrol like the spotlight is coming and you gotta like <laughs> yeah. act natural what are you doing you got drugs or something no i'm just walking yeah. there's this feeling like there's a police behind me i'm like i gotta i gotta behave right it's far different when you are and this is largely only the case in my experience in rich white areas where there there's like a, a downtown art scene and right. there's a cops just like walking through the like walking past the barbecue place that's like out on from the sidewalk or whatever right and there it's it's there's much less of a he's gonna see me kind of vibe even when you for like inexplicable reasons right um but the 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 reason why there's a segue into urban planning is because of why i think cars <laughs> are like low-key one of the hugest detractors from american like social community Mm, yeah the um the america's too big for one if you if you took a map of us and put it over europe it's and it's it's enormous it is the idea to american minds that like oh i'm just going to go to another country for the weekend is like rich people territory whether whereas for many people in europe it's a two-hour drive Right. They're just gonna go go next door. Basically, they're gonna it's like going out of state for the weekend. Right, right. It's um, and so it's it's a it's a it's a it's not so monumental a task, but part of the cause of that space is the popularization and almost necessity um, of the automobile. But the automobile's necessity was by design. It mm. is entirely um, that. Uh, big roadway project. I think Reagan signed it, or maybe it was earlier. Mm. The institution of a of a national uh, interstate highway system, um, the National Highway Labor or something or other Act. I don't know the Transportation Act. Um, kind of drove the necessity of the automobile into the American consciousness, and highways just sort of blatantly just cutting through through um, towns and things. And it's it's very I mean, it's just intuitive to know that as you drive past someone in a car, they're less of a human to you than when you walk past them on the street or when you bicycle past them on your bicycle. For for better or worse, it is kind of the case that we subconsciously view Europe as more sophisticated, yeah. quote unquote. Um, and a lot of that sophistication, even their cities and such that we like, oh, these are historic cities. They're more sophisticated. They have more of this air of what we want to embody. Um, the only American cities that can compete are cities that were that survived the automobile in that like New York city mm. certainly is not a city that anyone would design today in America because there's no parking. Yeah. 
And as a result, nobody in New York City owns a car unless you're rich or you need it for some specific reason. Right. Um, the infrastructure, this goes back to the libertarian idea of like <laughs> emergent order and the infrastructure to support so many pedestrians without cars springs up. We have buses. We have um, in Chicago, there are Divi bicycle rental systems. Mm -hmm. There are um, just, just so many solutions that aren't you have a garage and 2.5 kids and you commute right. an hour every day into work in the city. Right. There is um, the, that um, land use um, thing that I wrote this like mini essay for, for the council and emailed it to them was uh, mixed use development. Mm. You have people who are, and I, and I'm just kind of like sailing over the different ways that urban planning yeah. affects how we engage. Like, People don't think stop signs have anything to do with racism, but they so do. And I get like tinfoil hat about this. And oh like, man, yeah. <laughs> if only, if only that, if only there were more this, we'd be more human to each other, which I, I think is very true in many ways. But have you ever heard of the um, NIMBYs or not in my backyard people? Um, just a little bit, but yeah. If you want to refresh both me and anyone who's listening to this uh, in the future, yeah. Um, in generally, they're they're in general they are middle aged or later, generally higher socioeconomic class, generally white homeowners mm. who have invested in their view in a home, and so want to lobby their local government to stop anything that they feel would detract from their property values. Mm. And so, um, apartment complexes generally attracts lower socioeconomic classes to live there. Mm -hmm. um, there's when I lived in that small town in Indiana, there was another small rich town that sort of like existed farther away from the highway. You needed a car to get there. You needed there's there's all sorts of like there's no gas stations in the town. Right. You, you, you we don't want people stopping who don't live here stopping and getting out and socializing mm -hmm. our area we want right. to keep this area clean right yeah there's quote unquote yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is a, there's no there's no mcdonald's in in that little small town um they want to they want to keep we go to them and we associate we deign to condescend to to associate with you lowly peons we don't want you guys coming in our area and there is this vibe when um that i've experienced especially when i despite being pretty vain of a person would sometimes I would look homeless sometimes mm. and, and you really get a, a sense of how non-verbally differently people treat you right. when you are like walking through the grocery store and oh look at that there's a customer or there's a worker in every aisle I go to making sure I don't steal I mean they're right. totally organizing the shelves like right. and there's that <laughs> of us versus them and when you when you do allow that sort of land development that um, allows apartments above grocery stores and you you have the sort of live work play in your community you have the the i forget what they call them in uh, mexico but the corner or in, Span in, in spanish but there's a term for that sort of like everything you need most of the time it's like a it's like a it's like a, it's just a corner store that serves mm. as a whatever you need to buy you know you buy your groceries once a day Right. You don't need, you you go down and you know people you pass them on the street you you work within bicycling distance um, yeah and there is not this um, insularity where you my dad for example lived uh, an hour away minimum 
the whole time growing up in the suburbs mm. in his house that he worked very hard to achieve and um and and kind of manifest the american dream kind of style right um but as a result he doesn't really know what it's like to to live within walking distance of his job site he's a construction worker um okay. and now yeah. he's, he's gone pretty high up but he not to make a construction pun but but he <laughs> he um he wait yeah, I guess my point overall is just that there are innumerable, invisible ways that well-intentioned civil engineers and sort of um, um, city officials mm -hmm. give in to sort of plans for cities that benefit the people giving them money to choose those things. Mm, yeah. um, uh, Ford wants highways built across the united states ford wants you to buy cars um and when you as a politician give in to those influences and you think well how can this hurt communities you don't see that 50 years later there's going to be no cross-pollination and thus high degree of polarization between these communities that are just miles apart from each other and bringing back that organic cross-pollination is i think one of the most visceral ways that you can end prejudice and it's not the internet has enabled um cross pollination cross pollination away exposure to new things but it also ultimately trends toward segregation finding your niche and now with the internet there's eight billion people you can find your hyper hyper niche right you can find the people who think exactly like you do yeah and you're no longer forced to find the people that think more like you right than not super well said you when you're touching on the yeah just all the all the civil engineering stuff and just how people are essentially what's happening is it's like you know some businessman comes along or, or some governmental agency comes along and says we're going to hire you and we're going to pay you x amount of dollars to do whatever and to most people like you, you use the phrase good well-intentioned and i totally agree to most people it's just like well i just want to do what i'm passionate about for a living and i want to make good money doing it and in 99 percent of you know 99 percent out of 100 cases there's nothing wrong with that but it takes time at least what what I'm gleaning from this as as someone who's learning from you and just thinking about it as well, um, it takes time for the the ripple effect to be seen and to be felt in these communities. It, it takes time, and it, it's it's an unfortunate reality because it's like the 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 person who's just like doing the work, building the city or paving the road or whatever. They yeah they have their job to do, and if they're trying to balance that with the the philosophical, ethical, and socioeconomic ramifications of their work, that's a lot for them to juggle. But I think, to your credit, if if people can absorb the things that you're saying and, and the merits of the arguments that you're putting forth, we can have we can have both things. We can have people who are successful doing their jobs, doing their jobs well, and building a world like you said like the the mixed use land where there's like all this stuff that can be brought out of it where no one has to be uh walking away with like you know anything to their detriment and and we can be creating this harmonious world that frankly everybody says they want you know <laughs> very very few people are willing to just come out there and be like i want like violence and you know whatever and division all the time like you, you're just people 
will do that with their action, but no one's just going to come out and say that because most people know how ridiculous that sounds, but it takes a lot of humility, a lot of work, a lot of a lot of sacrificial decision making to to see how we can move move the things forward that you were talking about. But I, I think it's it's a very noble cause and it's something that should probably be talked about and considered a lot more often than it currently is. Yeah. To anyone interested about this, um, some of the I as a, just as a medium, video essays are some of my favorite informational content to consume. Um, they're very engaging and they're generally between like three and 20 minutes long on YouTube. And um, some of my favorite ones that I've formed, informed and, and kind of instilled in me the passion for this sort of what to many I think would feel like, you know, being passionate about being a dentist, like you're passionate about how <laughs> about intersections, like right. <laughs> you're passionate about bicycle lanes. What? What? I don't even really bicycle that much, but like the idea um, on YouTube, uh, there's the Vox Media mm. has a lot of um, um, video essays on urban planning and uh, design. From the description of one of their videos, they have written, um, the interstate highway system was one of America's most revolutionary infrastructure projects. It also destroyed urban neighborhoods across the nation. The 48,000 miles of interstate highway that would be paved across the country during the 50s, 60s, and 70s were a godsend for many rural communities. It goes on later and says, um, but so why did the cities help build the expresses that, that would so profoundly decimate them? And the answer involves a mix of self-interested industry groups, like I was saying, Ford wants right. to spend money on tires and cars, design choices made by people far away, Again, not being, not really relating to the, the not having face-to-face, -face, not walking the street instead of driving it in your car as a cop or whatever, not really understanding what people go through. A lack of municipal foresight, which understandably can be difficult to understand when you're making choices as a, as a random, um, you know, congressman or mayor, what the effects of having a highway go through your sound is going to have in 40 years. Yeah. And then um, going back to when the highways were actually built, outright institutional racism from like the practices of redlining and things where they would spe specifically say, if you lived in these areas, you're, you know, you don't get to get a loan or whatever. Right. Um, the, the, there's a lot of great content. And then a podcast that I would also want to give a shout out to is uh, the podcast 99% Invisible, which is, mm. um, not not generally as a sort of social consciousness way. It's more of a kind of curio way. Mm. It speaks to the idea that in any object you interact with, only one percent of its history or 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 story is visible to you, mm. and the and ninety nine percent of it is invisible. Um, so like uh, architecture, why 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 the why the curbs, where curb cuts came from. Like why why did that become the standard, or why why are why are street lines colored the way they are, or why do people wear suits with lapels as opposed to without lapels? Whatever it is, there's just yeah. a, a rich history to all this stuff, and just the same with urban planning. The you see one percent of what's happening. You see, okay, they put right. a bike lane here and they put parking there, but the effects of those sort of innocent, almost sort of like inconsequential choices right. are 99% invisible and the solutions are need to be hard fought by the people who care and yeah. who, who have the capacity to see into them because a lot of them aren't 
intuitive. I mean, that's the entire reason they don't exist is because the intuitive solutions were chosen. Right. We need we need less congestion. Let's widen the highways. Right. Obviously, that makes sense, except when it doesn't. Right. Um, <laughs> a lot of studies show that when you widen highways, you actually can make congestion worse. Um, mm. And there is a counterintuitive but very uh, a deeply sensical reason for these sorts of things. And when you want to put forth the solutions like let's fix congestion let's narrow the highway you're gonna put come up with a lot of um pushback yeah and so the i think that's why i think like the work that vox does with these essays making these four minute 30 seconds video on why parking meters should change is huge um and important work that will never be accomplished if you just say well we should like if you're if you're wanting to institute some sort of tech technocracy where you have technocrats involved who are you have scientists running the government yeah um nobody will elect them i mean you you can have a, a good or bad yeah. opinion of whether that would work out for us as a society i tend to think that like yeah i think that if people if there were actual like scientists running the different like that specialized in different things it would be good but nobody's going to elect them because right. as you pointed out the people drawn to policing are of a certain disposition they're right. of a certain type of person there there's you're not going to have you know people like me who are pretty slight i'm not imposing not many <laughs> people call me intimidating i'm right. not paranoid i'm not i don't i'm not given to like i need to fight for my community right i'm more like heady you right. know we're we're on, a, we're on a fairly intellectual podcast i imagine that most of your guests are going to be right you know you're going to have deeper minds or or yeah they're gonna yep <laughs> they're not gonna be they're not gonna be like the look how strong i am and uh i'm gonna go build a building kind of person exactly and so they're the just the same way politics to kind of bring it full circle back to the original, the people that get elected are the people who are most successful at adapting a sort of Machiavellian disposition. Yes. And I'm going to manifest an image to you that is whatever you want it to be. Yep. And like Trump, I think was, you could evaluate anything he said I think most sensibly through the frame of what does he think you want to hear right now? Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think that he really, he got a lot, he got pretty far. He became president yeah. off of this, but the, I, I really don't think there was, there was no 4d chess happening that some people might've ironically or unironically ascribed to him. He was very, what do I perceive people as wanting to hear me say right now? Right. I'm going to say that coronavirus isn't a concern that's what people want to hear that's what i'll tell them and now they'll love me that's the kind of thing that you don't you're not going to get with technocrats technocrats are going to say everything you thought is wrong right. everything i think is correct and the data supports me and these right. policies that sound horrific we're going to do these and you're going to deal with it nobody's yeah. going to right oh man yeah the trump stuff that was that was so well played and it's so true i i just find it comical honestly that there's there's been so many people who pull out like the oh trump's been playing 4d chess this whole time and you know he's gonna i mean there, there's this whole rabbit hole just to touch briefly on that of certainly q people but but just kind of right right wing people in general who are like 
you know, Trump's going to come back. He's going to, you know, he's going to play him on January 21st. Oh, he's going to come back on February, whatever. He's going to come back on March 4th or whatever. And it's just like, you, you already said it, like Trump is not an intellectual. Like he, 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 he's a businessman. You know, he, he comes from a business background. Like he is you a have phenomenal hustler. That is, yes. he's, he's, a, he's a shark and he has got gotten rich. He's won and lost billions from that. Right. And that's, that's what he is though. He's not, he's not a, he's not a chess master. Right. And, and I think to, to go off that as well, touching on the emotional stuff too, it's, he in certain ways kind of was always the perfect fit to be a politician from the emotional standpoint, because in politics and especially in running for the presidency, you're not, you're not going to convince people by sitting them down and, and showing them your, your 500 page, plan that you've built over the last decade for everything you've you've got to just be basically spitting fire for lack of a better term you know just just being someone who like you said you're you're saying the right thing at the right time to the right people that's really all that matters because people want their emotions to feel gratified they want their emotions to feel validated coming from the type of person that they want to be validated by and so yeah, super well said. You've probably heard a little bit of this from me, or maybe seen it from me. I know we're <laughs> friends on Facebook, and I post things. But um, yeah, some of some of the ways that I have sought to sort of cultivate empathy in myself with other people is through personality typologies. Yeah, and one of, one of my favorite ones kind of uh, adopts this paradigm where people want to feel. People have three base drives. They want to feel worthy or loved they want to feel in control and mm -hmm. they want to feel like they have the autonomy to act in the world and right. they want to feel safe from whatever dangers and if you as a politician can say you your your tribe is loved right. you personally are safe from like the things that you fear and i'm going to give you the tools to be autonomous in the world and, and act out your your agency then you're going to be successful regardless of whether that's true or not. Right. I love that. Yeah, it's 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 speaking to people's core core desires. That is very true. And uh, Trump Trump did that in droves. I mean, there's no question that I mean, honestly, when I was looking at like just all the Hillary and, and Trump debates, there I mean, there were moments where I was like, are people, you know, are people going to push Hillary over the top because she is a woman and because she's a Democrat? And I know I, I personally I won't name names, but I know a number of people who voted for her just for those two reasons alone, which that's fine. That's something that I would completely disagree with for my own political motivations. But, you know, the more I looked back, I was like, oh my gosh, Trump was the clear choice because he was so much better at not only quashing his enemy, but, but speaking to the things that people, he, he knew in advance every single time what people wanted to hear, like you said. And, and he was able to, he was able to revive this sort of, I read a lot of articles that he was speaking to this kind of sector of America that, that feels forgotten, feels unsafe, all the things you were talking about. And he was able to just kind of sweep them up in the palm of his hand and be like, I've got you. And uh, that was good enough for them. So <laughs> when you say Trump was always the choice, you mean, of course, Trump was always in a better position to capitalize on the electorate and win. Not necessarily that Trump was the the correct choice oh totally yeah uh, i should have clarified yeah i mean i i i have never voted for trump i never would he's you know he he has done a lot of things that have um 
you know, he he's he's had his moments where I feel like he's he's actually been pretty close to the mark, but he's he's certainly not been a candidate that I would ever support. But I almost voted for him in hopes that he would be so incompetent that he would do nothing. Oh, oh, yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> I was like, you know, what? if uh, if I had a president that literally did nothing, I would be like, all right, I'm going to mark that up as a win. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's, that's in, in, he uh, just managed not to fuck anything up for four years. Too bad, and uh, just like sign any budget things that need to happen, and I guess that's fine. <laughs> like we don't need yeah huge yeah. things going on. <laughs> it's very true, and and I think that that speaks to some of the things that I I can't say that I was looking at it that way too, or or hoping that that would happen because I, I I mean people have described him as like a bull in a in a china shop and and various other things to varying degrees of accuracy as well. But, but you, you make a good point. And that's, that's kind of what I was thinking too, is it's like, right. He, he was never the correct choice. I, I feel like there's no, ultimately there's no correct choice for, for, pre, you know, for any presidents really just like who's going to, like you said, either do the least damage or, or who's going to hopefully by adherence to their principles, get us at least an inch closer to where things ought to be. But Anyways, kind of repeating myself at this point. So, so. That's a, that's a, that specific articulation you just gave is actually a, an important point and one that had been used to try to persuade me to vote certain ways is not viewing, because I didn't vote for either mm. um, Hillary or Trump. Mm-hmm. And people would say, well, I mean, part of this goes back to first past the post, so like, you know, you're spoiling the vote for the whatever. And to view the, don't vote, you know, quote, only for the person who agrees with you. Vote for the person who will get you closest to where you want to be. Like, view view your vote as a bus ticket you're buying. If you don't have a bus to your destination, you don't need to skip the bus. You could say, oh, this bus takes me halfway there. I'll just ride this one then. Right. And uh, that was uh, an impressive little tidbit of rhetoric that was that made me stop and think because I have definitely been the person who is... I will wait until there's a bus to where I want to go and I'm not getting on any bus before that one right. <laughs> and sort of been obstinate making the, um, the other articulation is don't make the, the perfect, the enemy of the good. And don't right. say that I'm waiting until I get exactly what I want and I'm going to reject anything that's halfway what I want until then. Yeah, no, super well said. I love that. Um, so we are, I'm loving this. We might have to do a part two at some point. I was just taking a look at the time. Um, let's do some, let's do like one or two rapid fire questions here and then we will wrap up. Um, so do you feel like there's anyone in the political landscape today, any kind of like dark horses or just players who you feel like are going to um, either potentially turn things around if they're in the right position or, or just anyone that you're rooting for in, in general? Oh boy. Um, the quick answer is no, because okay. I generally tend to check out of um, the nitty gritty sort of politics. I have a couple friends who are very much like, well, they just passed this resolution and this senator has had a good history. And so he's in a good position to become chair of this committee. And I'm like, I'm zone. I'm like zoomed out of like the 50 year view. I'm not, I'm not tuned in at all to who won what seat in what district. Um, that said, um, I will say the sort of like hope for Rand Paul to become Ron Paul too. Mm. Yeah, 
that that was that's that's I'm done with that dream. I've been a, that's a couple of years dead by my estimation. Gotcha. Yeah. Paul is definitely a sort of um, uh, kind of classical Republican from what I've seen. Um, the only person that had piqued my interest a few years ago was Ben Sass. I don't know. I haven't caught up catch up, caught up to what he's been up to, but he's um, he's definitely someone I would go figure out what he has been up to and um, probably will after this podcast and see if he's still being a, a good guy or if he's kind of sold out or not. Okay. Sounds good. Awesome. Yeah. I love that. Let's see what else I got for you. Um, anything you've been into recently in like the entertainment sphere or cultural stuff uh, in, I mean, you obviously gave some shout outs with podcasts, but uh, any good like movies, books, music you've been listening to that you feel like shouting out? Um, yeah, let me see what's in my little Spotify stuff here. The, uh, uh, just in general, cultural entertainment stuff, um, typology stuff, I, uh, have kind of made my obsession. I, it's not for everybody, but, um, I've found a lot of value in approaching people and myself to deepen understanding, like, um, the sort of like MBTI thing to sort mm. of understand that, there are differing but equal ways of engaging with information and that it um in the same way with um enneagram which i know has been a, a burgeoning in popularity yeah i have a lot a of um <laughs> issues to take with uh the sort of shallow version that it's uh had that it's kind of manifested as sort of like pop culture yeah. um but if you're willing to kind of dive into it i think it has immense potential to um uh, to be transformative and to really um, give light to the ways that we are stuck um, with on a very, very deep unconscious level and that when some people act in a certain way, understanding, kind of intuiting where they're coming from and understanding mm -hmm. that that is something that like literally makes them terrified on a, on a way they can't have words um, can really make you compassionate for like the people like say sjw's if those if sjw's piss you off and you're a republican dude yeah. understanding or like say or if you're an sjw and you see those republicans who are like the muslims are going to come and they're going to put sharia law here like understanding that that's something right. that is literally will make them literally burst into tears literally terrified is just so human it's hard to ignore it's right. hard to it's hard to you know shit on them for feeling that way yeah. And it's beyond their control. They're not, even if you want to condescend and say they're not smart enough, then fine. Say they're not smart enough. Right. Does that, does that, does that mean they're less human? Like it just means that they are incapable. Yeah. Um, as far as uh, anything else, I'll say uh, David Fincher is my favorite director. Okay. Um, um, I don't know about any recent movies that have been excellent, but I will name him. Um, and, um, Get Disowned by Hopalong is interesting. Last year was just it, uh, it most played by far album. Very good, kind of indie poppy thing. Sounds good. I'll have to check all those out. Sure. Um, thank you for shouting them out. Um, well, I think due to both lack of space on my laptop at the moment <laughs> and uh, everything else, we'll have to wrap it up there. But um, for sure. Dude, I just want to thank you again for uh, joining me for uh, one of the first interviews here on Bigger Hearts, Deeper Minds. You've been a fantastic guest, and honestly, man, open invitation. You're you're welcome back anytime. I feel like we have 
so many other things we could talk about and uh, all that good stuff. So yeah, I'm sure we could talk for hours going forward if we if we could. Yeah, you've been a great host. It was a uh, great talking with you. Thanks, Rian. Yep. All right. Um, thanks everyone for watching, and um, yeah, see you in the next episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of Bigger Hearts, Deeper Minds. I loved talking with my friend Rian Chervinsky about policing, politics in America, the presidential role, and so many other important topics. Learn more about what we do and check out our other blog posts and videos at biggerheartsdeeperminds.com. You can also check us out on social media on platforms like Facebook, Instagram, coming soon to Pinterest, and other platforms. Get subscriber perks behind-the-scenes videos, and merch discounts when you sign up for our email list. You can join our email list by sending a blank email to bhdm at bcast.email. Once again, that's sending a blank email to bhdm at bcast.email. Thanks again for watching this episode, and I hope to see you in the next one.